Hey, Nick Freudenberg, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. So I have just been devouring your book, Lethal But Legal, Corporate Consumption, Corporations, Consumption, and Public Health. And uh, my family kind of had to avoid me while I was reading it because I kept sort of like pounding the table in outrage. Um, I know that syndrome. <laughs> I guess you, you've probably been doing that for, for 50 years. Um, so... Let's let's get get right into it. You talk about um, something called the corporate consumption complex, um, and so you know we're living in this world. We've got these big corporations. They're making lots of profit. They're producing products that that people evidently want. What's what's the problem? Why why is why are we looking at corporations and and what they do as as anything other than a boon on our economy? Yes, well, I uh, describe the corporate consumption complex as a network of consumer corporations, uh, their uh, financial institutions, banks, investors, uh, other kinds of funds, the trade associations, the advertising agencies, the public relations firms, the law firms, and the uh, politicians, scientists, and journalists that they pay for to advance their case. And I borrow from a phrase that uh, Dwight Eisenhower used in 1961 as he was leaving office, and he warned the nation about the military-industrial complex, uh, the defense industries that emerged after World War II, and Eisenhower said that they constituted a threat not only to our democracy, but really to the well-being of the nation. And I make the same argument today about the corporate consumption complex. And my argument is that by their uh, business practices of advertising, product design, retailing, and pricing, and by their uh, political practices of campaign contributions, lobbying, uh, philanthropy, sponsored research, they endanger public health and also our democracy and the environment. And they do, they endanger public health by promoting uh, health behaviors, lifestyles, social environments, policies that encourage consumption of unhealthy products. And I call this practice of uh, eating and consuming things that uh, contribute to premature death and preventable illness and injury, hyperconsumption. And the corporate consumption complex promotes hyperconsumption because it's profitable, even though it damages public health. And what I try and show in the book is how they do this, what the health consequences are, and what we can do about it. Right. So what, one of the sentences that really um, struck me is that, that this corporate consumption complex is the primary modifiable cause of today's, today's major causes of premature death and preventable illnesses and injuries. Words, if, you're, if you're a public health person or if you're someone who's concerned about the health of individuals, populations, the planet, the children, our future, our communities, our vibrant democracies, then the number one lever of possible change is changing the way these corporations get to operate in the world. 
Yes, that's the case I make. And in public health, we see two major causes of death uh, growing really everywhere in the world. One is chronic diseases, which now account for uh, three out of four deaths here in the United States, uh, 60% around the world expected to grow to 70% or so by 2030. Uh, these are things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, and the other uh, growing global cause of death is injuries, uh, often related to automobiles, firearms, and in another way, alcohol. And these two causes of death, chronic diseases and injuries, are uh, what we need to take on if we're going to be able to achieve our health goals as a nation and as a world. And the case I make in the book is that six industries that I focus on, food and beverage, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, pharmaceutical, and automobile, that those six industries are, the, uh, are fundamental, modifiable causes of both chronic diseases and injuries. Right. So now I come from the world where food and beverage is very interesting to me and pharma. And I see them as sort of the twin purveyors of things that make us sick and things that keep us just well enough to keep buying. But to, to look at your book and see the wider perspective of the similarities between, you know, McDonald's and Unilever and Glock and, and Chrysler and Philip Morris uh, and Budweiser, it, it, it really was kind of shocking to realize that, that, that the industries are basically interchangeable. We think, you know, we yes. think of pharma as, as, at least some of us think of pharma as like noble people in white coats saving lives. But really, from a from a business perspective, it's no different than uh, than Smith and Smith and Wesson producing um, handguns. Well, well, here's what I learned from doing the research for the book: that I think the products are very different. Obviously, pharmaceuticals and food are products that we all want and need. So the argument is not to get rid of these products, of course. Uh, now, tobacco and firearms are in a very different category. Those are products that have used as directed are lethal, and so we need to think about different rules. But while the products are very different, what I learned is their practices, the corporate practices, are very much the same. And unfortunately, industries like food and pharmaceutical and automobiles have used the corporate playbook developed by the tobacco industry, which is undermining science, uh, using their political and economic clout to, uh, to uh, override public health protection. And in those ways, these six industries look very similar. And I think the value of looking at them across these industries is we begin to understand something about our current political and economic structure. And so the problem is not simply the practices of one industry or a particular problem product, but the way that we've assigned responsibility to markets and government. And that leads to a very different prescription than if we look at one industry or one product at a time. Right. Then you know, I really appreciate both the, the, the breadth of examples that you give and also the historical perspective that you bring. I guess you've been in the trenches since the as a, since being a student activist in the '60s, so you've seen yes, a, that's a, right. you've seen a lot of things um, 
you know, I guess you probably, it was probably hard to imagine in the, in the mid sixties that tobacco could be any, could, you know, that cigarette smoking could be as taboo as it has become in many parts of the United States. And, and you, you know, you've seen successes as well as this encroachment of corporate power. Um, yes. And I think I've also, as a public health researcher, uh, benefited from a close reading of public health history because there really were remarkable advances in public health in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they resulted from clean water, safer food, you know, sanitation, uh, safer housing, safer workplaces. And so the question I asked was, how could we bring that level of accomplishment to the 21st century? And that led me to looking at the practices of these industries that are shaping patterns of health and disease today. Yeah, and, and I, I was I kept on sort of being grateful for that perspective as I was reading because I think ultimately it's an optimistic book, even though page by page it just felt like a you know body blows. <laughs> yes, and in my teaching I faced that dilemma too of how to find the right balance between uh presenting the problems as they are, which are very serious, uh, but also giving cause for hope. And one of the uh, insights I've come to is there's both bad news and good news in seeing that these giant corporations are the main cause of today's most important health problems. And the bad news, of course, is if you accept the analysis that I put forward, then you need to take on the most powerful political and economic institutions in the world today, these multinational corporations. But the, the, the good news has two parts. One is there are not so many of them. There are only 500 or 1,000 uh, corporations that make the vast proportion of consumer goods used in the world today. And so shouldn't it be easier to change the behavior of 500 or 1,000 corporations than to change the behavior of the 1.3 billion people in the world who are overweight and at risk of diabetes, heart disease, or certain forms of cancer, or to change the behavior of the 1.2 billion smokers, you know, or the many more uh, people, young people who are at risk of, uh, of developing smoking, or the 140 million uh, alcoholics in the world, or the many more who have problem drinking. And so if we focus our energies then the task we have is simply changing how uh, several hundred or a thousand corporations do business, not having to take on the really Sisyphean task of changing the behavior of billions of people and then needing to do that again because more people are recruited by the marketers for uh, adopting those same unhealthy behaviors and practices. So that does make me optimistic. Right. So I have, I have, you know, conservative friends who, whose word for, for that viewpoint is liberal drivel. So, mm -hmm. right. So I hear uh, that too. So I, I posted a link to, um, where I first found out about your book. I think it was Mark Bittman's, uh, review on, in the New York Times. And I posted mm -hmm. that on my Facebook wall. And a friend of mine wrote, it looks like, you know, liberal drivel to me designed to talk me into giving up even more freedom and rights because it's quote, the right thing to do. So you talk about that a lot in the book that there is this entire ideology of, of consumption, uh, that, 
that says that, look, people will do what they want to do. These corporations aren't twisting anybody's arm. They're just selling things that people want. And if we want to have to make different choices, then that should be up to us. And the you know the the, the two word phrase, the, the the brilliant framing from from the corporate defenders is, we don't want a nanny state. So how, mm-hmm. how do you how do you uh, respond to that? Yes, and I think that is the essential argument. And I'll maybe make. Uh, three points. First, I think that uh, the uh, frame of individual choice uh, is of relatively recent origin. It's now so widespread that we assume that there's no alternative to that. And it was really developed and promoted uh, extremely aggressively, actually by the tobacco industry in the 1950s and the work of a medical historian, uh, Robert Proctor, at Stanford University really develops this very carefully in some of his written work. And the tobacco industry, when they realized after the first Surgeon General's report that the evidence was going the wrong way, that there was the beginning of evidence that uh, tobacco was an extremely lethal product, they uh, decided to reframe the argument because the consensus at that time was that if a product was proven lethal, you would ban it. That was the responsibility of government, to protect people, to uh, remove products that had no uh, known value, but that put people at risk. And whether you do that by discouraging use or prohibiting, uh, that's a, a tactical strategy. Uh, but when the tobacco industry realized that the health evidence was coming out uh, against them, they said it's people's choice. It's the choice to smoke or not to smoke. And every other one of the six industries I've looked at has used to promote that choice. But no one ever walked into a food store and said, give me a plate of uh, trans fat, uh, a product added to food uh, to extend shelf life, uh, no known nutritional value, and associated with hundreds of thousands of cardiovascular deaths. And no one, no consumers ever said, please put some lead in that paint because I want to poison my children. So I think this notion of individual choice is really a a misunderstanding that people have not, uh, in many cases, chosen these dangerous products. Corporations decided to develop them uh, because they were profitable. A good case in point is sports utility vehicles. Uh, these were hardly used vehicles. They were unsafe. They were uncomfortable. But the automobile industry decided in the 1990s it was a way of recouping the markets they were losing to more supple manufacturers in Europe and Japan. And so they exploited various provisions of trade laws which protected uh, vehicles like sports utility vehicles from uh, tariffs, uh, and they were also 10 to 12 times more profitable than sedans. And then they promoted those products relentlessly. In the late 1990s, the big three automakers spent something like $9 billion promoting sports utility vehicles. And uh, they hired anthropologists to help them design cars to appeal to unconscious instincts. One anthropologist advised Chrysler to appeal to people's reptilian instincts for self-protection and for running over anything that got in their path. 
And that's what SUVs were made to look like, even though they were more dangerous vehicles. And one estimate is in the 1990s and early part of the uh, first part of this century, they contributed to 3,000 excess deaths a year. And with that relentless advertising and with the appeals to fears of, uh, of, of safety and the desire to go out on the open road, even though the only time most SUV owners left the highway was when they uh, came into their driveway and ran off uh, onto the curb uh, late at night because they had too much to drink. Many people bought SUVs because of these uh, really deceptive advertising. So I think we could look at that for many other products, that these weren't choices people made. These were choices industries made uh, in order to uh, uh, market more profitable products. The second point I want to make is the connection between individual rights and community rights. And there's a story I tell in the book about a coalition that formed in Philadelphia uh, called Stop Uptown Cigarettes. And the Reynolds Tobacco Company wanted to market uh, a cigarette called Uptown to African Americans. And a coalition of health, civil rights, and church groups got together in Philadelphia and said, we say no as a community. We have the right as a community to protect our children, to protect our citizens from marketing a product that's going to addict our young people and expose them to premature death. And Reynolds Tobacco decided not to test market this product, not to release it, because they were afraid that a local campaign would go national, damaging their reputation in the African-American community, an important market for tobacco. And I think that story has two important lessons. One is the ability to reframe as uh, community rights and not just individual rights, and also the power of even a single community to get a big corporation to change its practices. And the final thing I want to say on this topic is uh, we need to look at both corporate responsibility and individual responsibility. Yes, Individuals have a choice, and individuals have a responsibility. And ultimately, we decide what to put in our mouth, you know, what to smoke, what to drive. But uh, if we say individuals have a responsibility, then we also have to say that corporations have a responsibility not to market lethal products, not to expose children to things that will put them at risk of premature death. And my belief is if we look for the real evil nannies, in our society, it's Coca-Cola, it's Pepsi, it's McDonald's, who persuade, uh, who try to persuade our children to engage in habits that we know endanger their health. And any real nanny that did that would be liable for child abuse or child neglect. But here we let these companies endanger our children, often look to get under parental scrutiny by uh, using uh, Internet and other forms of advertising to children. So I think uh, individual choice and individual responsibility are important topics to talk about, but we need a wider context to have that discussion. Well, and you talk about, you know, the marketing to the reptilian mind, and I think that that's a, sort of across the board. Uh, that, sure. that that's, you and know, to that's play on our fears and our irrational, and in the case of the food industry, looking to our evolutionary instinct. You know, people evolved in the savanna when uh, 
hunger was a constant threat. And so stoking up on sugar and salt and fat uh, gave us survival advantages. You needed to do that because you might be hungry tomorrow or next week. But in today's world, when these unhealthy products have been made ubiquitous, then these evolutionary instincts put our health in danger. And what food companies do, as well as tobacco and alcohol companies, is to appeal to these evolutionary instincts in a way that endangers our health. Right. And, I'm, you know, and I, I can't help but see advertising um, as, you know, on, on television and sports events, on the news, in, in our culture, the, the, the job of the media, yeah, there's, there are, uh, there are hacks who are paid by and rewarded by industry for, for spreading their message. But the general tenor of our society is to, of, of our, you know, journalistic discourse is to promote fear, a sort of a, a free floating fear of life at every turn. Um, you know, I, I saw this when I was working on Hole with uh, T. Colin Campbell. We're, we're looking at um, the at the way, the, the, especially pharmaceutical and the food industry, just try to introduce doubt, not even try to prove anything, but just make us say, "Well, I don't know. Everything causes cancer. Might as well just give up." The, that that there's an entire sort of cultural ethos of, you know, things are terrible out there, and I and I might as well just you know, have whatever pleasure I can get. Yes, yes. And I think the other is, you know, attempting to appeal to our anxieties about masculinity and femininity and worth in the world and to think that consuming a product or identifying with a brand is a way of addressing those uh, stresses of daily living in a hierarchical society. Right. I, I see that a lot with marketing, especially around marketing of meat products. Um, you know, and, and with the, uh, the advent of the paleo movement, um, and, you know, re trying to, trying to frame the food we eat uh, in terms of masculinity. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, you know, with, as a background as a marketer and having spent a, a decade on the online world, I see both reason for for hope and despair. On the one hand, you have, you know, the Uptown uh, Anti-Cigarette Coalition um, being amplified online where, where you know, crit criticisms of corporations can quickly go viral, can lead to, you know, people can take videos and, and all of a sudden cause huge, you know, dips in stock price and, and PR nightmares. But at the same time, with, you know, Google and Facebook advertising and possibly the NSA spying on us, these companies are getting better and better and better at pushing our buttons. How, how do you see, you know, the modern uh, digital marketing as, as helping or, or hurting the cause of public health? Well, I think the harms, as you outlined them, are very clear. I think it's been particularly useful for the alcohol, tobacco, and food industries uh, to market directly to children and young people. And they are they're, uh, shifting investment from uh, television and other forms of mass media into digital media is really a way to bypass parental control uh, and uh, family discussions. And it's also a way to develop what I discuss in the book of having a cadre of uh, children to serve as marketers-in-chief in the household, that many uh, companies use the nag factor of uh, persuading children 
often children with not yet fully developed cognitive capacities, to nag their parents to buy certain products. And so I think that's a really dangerous trend tendency. And I think the thinking among child development experts is that young children and even uh, middle school children don't have the capacity to distinguish between truthful messages and persuasive messages that are designed to get children to buy something to enrich a company. So I think we need to rethink what the role of government is, what uh, freedom of speech makes. You know, uh, in the original uh, freedom of speech rulings, the sort of proviso was that freedom of speech did not include the right to shout fire uh, in a crowded theater when there was no fire, that that would uh, lead to such demonstrable harm that that speech was not protected. And I think the notion that speech that encourages children or adults to consume products that will risk premature death and preventable illness should be protected by free speech protection uh, is not something that the Founding Fathers ever had in mind. And I think we've seen uh, from some of the recent decisions on gay marriage that the courts follow public opinion rather than lead it. So I think we need a much more concerted effort to say that uh, corporations ought not to be able to use the protection of commercial speech to encourage people to uh, engage in unhealthy behavior. And corporations should not be able to use protected uh, political speech to undermine public health protection. Mm, which, uh, I guess, which I guess begs the question of who owns the truth, right? So in part of the research th uh, that I did when I was working on Whole was the, the ways in which uh, medical journals uh, are influenced by pharmaceutical companies and, and by device manufacturers, you know, publication bias, uh, what research gets funded in the first place, what the NIH puts money into. Uh, that, you know, that for, for people like me who believe a plant-based diet is so demonstrably healthier than, than a, a diet based on processed foods and animal products, yet there's still sufficient doubt in, you know, even among sort of medical professionals and, uh, you know, even public health people. It's, it's very frustrating to, to argue uh, you know, science against marketing that's so good it looks like science. Yes, yes. And as you uh, said earlier, uh, that doubt is very much uh, a deliberate product. A tobacco industry executive said, uh, quite literally, doubt is our product. That that was their strategy for contesting the science that overwhelmingly demonstrated uh, the harmful effects of tobacco. And I think there's not a quick fix for this, but my own feeling is that in science as well as in other things, what we need to do is uh, really restore the role of the public sector. You know, the Reagan, uh, the Ronald Reagan mantra was that government is the problem, not the solution. Well, in public health, uh, it's the reverse. Uh, markets are the problem, and government is often the solution. Only government has the mandate and the resources to protect public health. Markets don't have that mandate. That's not our political system. And to expect them to take on protecting public health is an unreasonable expectation. 
But if they're not mandated to do that, if they don't have the will to do that, and if they don't have the capacity to do that, then we need to designate someone else. And that really is the public sector. And so we need to uh, empower the public sector around science, around regulation, around education, rather than leaving those tasks in the hands of market, which will always use uh, its authority to promote its self-interest, to promote profit, as they're legally mandated to do. And I think in the book I describe the process that I locate uh, accelerating beginning in the 1970s uh, of uh, really tilting the pendulum uh, way far to the right in allowing markets to make decisions that markets aren't capable of uh, carrying out. Mm-hmm. So in, in the introduction, you, you write that you're often asked if you're against corporations. And when, when I was working on whole, I was often uh, questioning myself, like, am I against capitalism or am I against profits? And, you know, with, with a historical perspective, it seems like within a capitalist system with limited liability corporations that have been around for maybe three, four hundred years now, um, that, the, that, yeah, they are designed the same way a knife is designed to cut. The, these corporations are designed to maximize profit at the expense of everything else, which requires a strong government counterbalance. Would, would, would you agree or do you think that there, it's, it's possible to have a, a sort of an unfettered capitalism that maybe has a different ethos? behind it, or is that, is that just wistful thinking? Well, what, what I say in the book is, to my mind, uh, capitalism is like the family and religion. They're social institutions. They were created for a particular purpose. They've evolved over time. They're both going to be around. Uh, they're all three going to be around in some shape or another for the foreseeable future. And the question is, what are the ground rules? And to my mind, the antidote for the ills of capitalism is democracy. And I think uh, uh, a fundamental problem is in our political system where corporations have accumulated the power to be able to advance their agenda, their business and political agenda at the expense of the public's. And so I think we need to be looking for political changes in campaign financing, in lobbying, uh, in the revolving door between government and business. Those are the areas where we need to be making changes that will allow the public to uh, express its desires around having strong public health protection. If you look at the opinion polls, most people want the government to protect them from corporate predation. Uh, it's a, a very small handful of sectors of society that are against strong public health protection. It's the corporations, uh, some of their conservative supporters, and their allies. But they've been able to get a stranglehold on our political system uh, that has stymied uh, stronger public health protection. And that's where we need to be focusing in our change. And in the book, I make the case that those of us working in public health, those of us working in the environment, those of us working in democracy and social justice need to be talking to each other and identifying a common agenda so that we can work together. Uh, and if we're able to do that, we'll have a much better chance of being able to achieve both the incremental changes and the transformative changes that we need for a 
healthier, more sustainable, more democratic world. Right. And I'm, I'm particularly hoping that uh, my friends in the plant-based and vegan community will hear that, um, to, you know, to see that the, that, that that part of the struggle is part of a much larger picture. As, uh, typically, you know, typically vegans tend not to like to make compromises or alliances with people who aren't vegan. In, in, in a sense, they, many of them view themselves as abolitionists, um, where, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's I, I work in the food justice movement here in New York City, and there are many sects, uh, each with their own concerns around hunger, around animals, around uh, vegetarianism, and so on, around uh, obesity. Uh, but to find the common ground, to see where we agree and where we can make progress uh, politically, that's a really important task. And similarly, uh, in writing this book, I saw that in many cases people working on tobacco and alcohol and food, even though it's the same industries using the same practices, we've not been able to come together to say, here's our common agenda and here's what we can do together. We, we need to change that. Right, which one of the things I appreciate about the book is that you really frame all of the problems as a single problem um, of a, a corporate consumption complex run amok that is, it is both, you know, undermining democracy and also I love the phrase that you borrow from Benjamin Barber, induced childishness, where we're, 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 not, we're not meant to grow up in this society. We're not, unlike any sort of traditional society where there are rites of passage, there are recognized states of, of adulthood and elderhood and wisdom, no one in this society is supposed to grow up. We, we're, as long as we keep sucking from the, the, the teat of the corporate consumption complex, we're considered good consumers. And that whether yeah. it's, whether it's the food justice movement or keeping firearms out of the hands of our children or, uh, keeping unsafe cars off the road, that that us being infantilized and expecting to be taken care of, whether it's by government or corporation or anybody else, is 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 going to create the kind of passivity that leads to to more subjugation. Yes, and and to believe that freedom is to be able to choose between Coke and Pepsi or between McDonald's and Burger King. I mean, what a narrow, warped view uh, of freedom. I think another testament to the power of the corporate consumption complex is how many people uh, embrace a notion of freedom to choose a lifestyle that's associated with premature death, painful illness, uh, high and growing health care costs. How uh, compelling those arguments must be that so many people would uh, endorse uh, that lifestyle and that political regime uh, rather than one that supported health. And for those of us who have seen family members, you know, succumb to diabetes or heart disease or tobacco-related illness or alcohol-related illness, we know how painful that is and what a loss it is to lose people we love and care about uh, from habits that they were, uh, that they took on sometimes uh, early in their lives without any understanding that it would cause this later suffering. Uh, so it, it shows the task that we have ahead of us. Right. So w one of the uh, sentences that I underlined 
um, is we need to find ways to create patterns of consumption that bring pleasure, create community, and support health. So you're, you're really talking about a, a revolution in consciousness, that, that it's possible that, you know, what all of the, the industries that you talk about as preying on us have in common is that they're all to some extent um, addictive, that we, we consume them and we hyper-consume them because they're hyper-palatable in one form or another, and then it turns out not to be enough, so we need more. We need a bigger gun. We need more rounds. We need to fire faster. We need a bigger SUV. We need a Hummer. We need... You know, it's essentially an addiction model, which means there really is no pleasure in addiction. It's it's a it's a hit and a, and a an immediate crash. And you're talking about imagine if we consumed things that truly made us happy. Yes, and that uh, seems like a very tall order. In one part of the book, I talk about Alice in Wonderland and the White Queen. Uh, telling Alice to imagine six impossible things and Alice saying, well, you can't do that. And the queen says, well, you have to practice. And so I ask readers to practice uh, believing what seems to be impossible, such as a lifestyle that brings pleasure without putting us at risk, you know, without hyperconsumption. And uh, Maggie Thatcher uh, said uh, that the that the current form of capitalism was inevitable, that there was no alternative. And I think that belief that there is no alternative to hyperconsumption, there is no alternative to the corporate consumption complex, is very deeply held. And the, uh, the, the response to that, I believe, is another world is possible. And that really is our task, to be able to engage people in thinking about what that other world would be and what is possible. And too often, uh, critics of hyperconsumption have either advocated or seemed or been stereotyped to advocate uh, abstemiousness, prohibition, you know, don't do this, don't have fun. And that's not going to work. People turn to these products because they genuinely want pleasure in their lives. And so we're going to have to together come up with uh, new forms of pleasure, new forms of entertainment, new forms of fulfillment that satisfy human need, but that don't put health and the environment and democracy in danger. And I think the food movement is actually the furthest along in thinking about that and thinking about, you know, how do we talk about, prepare, uh, consume food that is pleasurable, that's tasty, that's affordable, that uh, returns us to... Uh, some of our earlier ways of enjoying food. And so I think, you know, the slow food movement, I think uh, some of the uh, new efforts, even in poor and low-income communities, to come up with different ways of making fresh, tasty, uh, healthy, locally grown food available, those are steps in the right direction, but we have a long way to go. Right. And, you know, one, one of the, the stereotypes around, you know, vegans or plant-based eaters is, you know, well, living on, you know, sticks and leaves. And I have to tell you, when you get together with a bunch of vegans, they talk about nothing but gourmet food. They're like, you know, Instagramming every cookie on their plate. Um, there's a great deal of, I would even say, you know, hedonism. Um, and I would, I would argue it's mostly positive hedonism, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, you know, true pleasure 
as as opposed to the uh, the artificial pleasures. So when you when you wrote that at the end of the book that this idea that the biggest achievement of the corporate consumption complex is to make us believe there is no alternative, I found that chilling. But you quickly explained that that's really an Achilles heel of the movement. Can you can you talk a little bit about about that? Yes, because I think as soon as we show that another world is possible, then the notion that there is no alternative uh, gets undermined. Uh, and I think uh, every time that people show another world is possible, that opens the door to a challenge to the notion that there is no alternative. So whether it's the folks in Philadelphia who got uh, Reynolds to not market their product, or whether it's the many uh, African-American and Latino uh, community groups that have rid their community of alcohol billboards that showed uh, semi-naked people and guns and uh, high alcohol content products designed to appeal to young people, or whether it's the uh, cities that are uh, developing alternative forms of transportation that don't require cars and allow people to walk more and to engage in mass transit, or whether it's the uh, city-country alliances that get fresh food from the countryside into farmers' markets in poor communities. Every success of, of, of that form so shows that another world is possible, and the hope is that those can become addictive in a new way and engage more people uh, in such activities, and then that they can uh, eventually lead to a tipping point. And, you know, the pessimism comes from thinking that it's too hard to take on the whole thing. But I think we've always seen that social movements bring about transformative changes by uh, instigating incremental changes that then lead to tipping points. Uh, we saw that in the civil rights movement, we saw it in the women's movement, we saw it in the environmental movement, and so that's the spirit that I hope we can develop in bringing together people who are working for a healthier, more sustainable world. Right. Well, you know, my guiding principle in bringing about any sort of change is the famous scene from When Harry Met Sally, where, you know, the punchline is, well, I'll, I'll have what she's having. That those right. of us who want a better world have got to be seen, publicly seen, as really living the good life. If we're if we're running around looking miserable, telling everyone else that they're sinning, we have we have no uh, we have no purchase on their on their time. Um, you know, and 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 I love both both of the book paints such a a sweeping picture of of oh, the world that is possible and specific steps we can take to get there and also it's really a um an ode to practicality you write it's at some point anyone can find some way to change what they eat drink buy or how they get around and that politicized consumers can choose the pace and trajectory of transformation from avoiding fast food outlets to becoming a vegan that every step on the tightrope is getting us closer to the destination and, and it's a mistake to just look at the destination and not celebrate every little thing that we do. Yes, and I've been in dozens of meetings, probably you too, of uh, activists where people debate the incremental versus the transformative changes. And I think, 
you know, we clearly need both and they're connected and one leads to the other. And I think if each of us feels uh, imperative and, and the imperative both at the personal level of having a more joyful life and at the political level of having a more just and democratic world to push the envelope a little bit in whatever ways you feel uh, comfortable. I think that we will see uh, big changes in the years to come. Right. And I'm, I'm currently studying with a, uh, a Stanford University um, psychologist on, on behavior change, uh, B.J. Fogg. And one of the things that he says is if you want people, if you want to change some of your own behaviors, you want other people to change their behaviors, one of the key rules is don't start with anything painful. Right? There's so, there are so many changes we could be making. There's no, there's no uh, shortage of choices. So start with something that's, that's not going to hurt at all to, to build some, some momentum. Yes. Um, so, you know, you, you, you raise the question about, so the, the ethical consumerism where we're, we're going to buy from nice companies and we're going to buy Priuses and recycled, you know, 100% post-consumer dish, dish towels. And you, you raise the question, is this just greenwashing? Which, you know, if it was all we were doing, it certainly would be. But I think you see a value in even gestures like this, right? Yes. What, what I see is it's, it's the path rather than the destination. And uh, in public health, what we saw around tobacco, both here in New York City, which is where I live and work, but I think also nationally, is the more we did to... Uh, contest the tobacco industry and to discourage tobacco use, the faster the rates went down. And so rather than argue, should we tax, should we educate, should we uh, ban smoking in public places, the answer to those questions is yes. <laughs> uh, and when you do multiple things, you see this, uh, this uh, rapid change in individual behavior and in social norms. So I think that's uh, the goal, and each of us decides where to start and where to end, but that the more people take those steps, the more rapid the transformation can be. And then on the uh, more sobering side, you know, again, referring to tobacco, in, uh, in the 20th century, uh, 100 million people died prematurely as a result of their tobacco use, and the estimates are in the 21st century, it will be 1 billion people who die prematurely unless we dramatically change the effort of our interventions. And so that shows what's at stake. We're really talking about uh, hundreds of millions, billions of lives over the next few decades. And so that's what gives me the sense of urgency. You know, here are lives we could save, lives we could extend, injuries and illnesses we could prevent. And so... We do what we can to achieve that, uh, and we've seen from tobacco that these steps work, but we also have seen with tobacco it took 50 years to cut smoking rates in this country in half. And can we do better around food, around alcohol, around automobiles? Uh, that's the, uh, the challenge that I feel in wanting to move this work forward. Right, and I haven't focused at all on the international, the global aspects of this work where, you know, the tobacco companies may be more or less stymied from growth in the United States, but the rest of the world is, is pretty much their playground. The, uh, 
the most chilling part of the book was was it Saperna, the the Indonesian tobacco company uh, that that had an ad that 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 literally said it's better to die than to be disloyal to a friend, meaning that the cigarettes were your friend, and if you gave them up, you were being disloyal, which was worse than death. Yes, this was a message on a billboard in, uh, I believe, Jakarta, uh, showing young people hanging around and smoking. And I think the, uh, uh, the lesson from tobacco control is that we need to be in sh- we need to be sure to have a global perspective because what happened with tobacco as you said is that our successes here in the United States led the to the global tobacco industry including the US companies to take the lessons they had learned in the United States the lessons that uh, a, a, a judge called uh, criminally negligent uh, uh, found that the tobacco industry had uh, violated racketeering laws. They took those same strategies and tactics and applied them in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And shame on us that we allowed that to happen. And let's be sure that we don't have the same experience with these other industries. Right. You know, so what, one thing that I think it's, it's a theme throughout the book, although you don't really discuss it overtly, is... Um, a holistic approach as opposed to a reductionist approach to solving the problem. I think you mentioned at one point that there's a lot of interventions that we could do that we can't really um, do, you know, gold standard controlled double blind studies on, but we still have to do the work. Um, yes. and, and so you, you point out that you, you have a policy agenda of, of six big items. Um, mm-hmm. could you, Kind of quickly go go through what we need to do. This is the this is the good news high point ending of the interview. So people leave with a with a renewed sense of hope and purpose. What what are, what do we need to do? Yes, and uh, in this uh, six point agenda, I was proposing what I thought would be the uh, goals that could bring together people working in different sectors, uh, in different parts of the country, different communities, different products. And uh, there's six. The first is that we should expand consumers' right to know and corporations' duty to disclose what they know about a product and the health consequences of their uh, practices and products. And I think that is a first step uh, in providing uh, people with the information they need to make more informed decisions. The second is that we ought to require corporations to pay for the health and environmental consequences of their products and practices. One of the things that has led to the proliferation of lethal products is that companies can externalize the costs, can pass them on to taxpayers, the victims of disease, uh, their consumers. But if they had to themselves pay for the health and environmental consequences, they would be less likely to uh, market products. And I see this primarily as a deterrent uh, to uh, these practices, that it's not uh, if you agree to pay for it, it's okay, but rather to deal with a legacy of lethal products that are in the marketplace today. The third uh, recommendation is to establish global standards, health standards for product design and marketing so we don't repeat uh, the disaster that we've seen in tobacco uh, moving its products to the 
uh, high-end to middle and low-income countries. The fourth uh, item on the policy agenda is to restore public ownership of science and technology. In the 19th and 20th century, advances in science and technology led to improvements in public health, cleaner water, safer food, uh, better sanitation practices. But unfortunately today, advances in science and technology are appropriated by industry and used to market their products more aggressively, neuroscience, evolutionary biology, uh, marketing, uh, communications. So we need to say that science belongs to the people and that a company cannot use uh, science and technology to uh, market uh, hyperconsumption and dangerous products. Mm, I, just uh, have to, I have to I ch jump in there to say how much it annoyed me when I was doing um, health research to find that there was this study that I wanted to read, and it was funded in part by the NIH and I didn't have, I couldn't get free access to it. I had to pay, you know, $27 to download the PDF. Well, yes. I paid There's for some that improvement already. in that, but what we still need is, uh, to, to not have so many universities are now signing, uh, non-disclosure agreements with companies agreeing, uh, to allow the company to decide what gets released and what doesn't get released. And that's a fundamental violation of the principles uh, free uh, science and uh, academic freedom that have informed universities for, you know, well over a century. The fifth uh, item on my agenda uh, was to restore the visible hand of government in public health protection. That, uh, as I said before, governments are the only institution with the mandate and the resources and the capacity to protect public health. And uh, a whole body of research shows that voluntary guidelines for industry compliance with standards doesn't work, doesn't lead to public health protection. So we need to make sure that government has the mandate and the resources to protect public health. And finally, as we've talked about, we need to prevent corporations from using their money and power to manipulate democratic processes. And that will require campaign finance reform, uh, it will require overturning uh, the uh, Citizens United decision. It will require uh, uh, much tighter restrictions on lobbying. And so I think these six items, uh, no doubt, changed and modified as the different groups involved uh, work through them, uh, would provide a starting point for having a common agenda. Right. And, you know... <laughs> What an exciting time to be alive, to, to be able to take up this mantle with, with optimism and rolled up sleeves, um, to not, you know, to not give in and, and to not despair. You know, I would, uh, I would say your, your book is, for so many reasons, it's the, uh, it's the rules for radicals for the 21st century. It's, it's a playbook. Um, you ha you you have tons of stories of things that worked, things that didn't work, things that sort of worked, things that could have worked had they been done a little bit differently. I think anyone who seeks to make uh, positive transformation in this world needs to get a copy of Lethal but Legal uh, and and really study it because I think this is this is our our best knowledge, our best strategies 
for coming together and creating the world that is possible, the world that we want to live in. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, Nick Freudenberg, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and the work you've done for half a century and hopefully continue for many years to come. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care.